Who are we? How do we see and experience the world? What are the hidden forces that drive us? Why do we act, think, and feel the way we do? And how can we become our best, most authentic selves? Welcome to Typology, a series of freewheeling conversations in which we use the Enneagram typing system to explore the mystery of the human personality. I'm Ian Cron. Hey, Typology friends! I want to offer you a few reminders before I introduce this week's episode. First, if you're new to the Enneagram and you want to learn more about it, go to the podcast page at typologypodcast.com and download a free chapter from my book, The Road Back to You, titled Finding Your Type. If you'd rather listen to a quick introduction on the Enneagram, you could also download and listen to our first episode, Introducing Typology in the Enneagram, on the podcast page as well. Second, while you're on the Typology website, visit the About page and take my introductory Enneagram assessment to start the journey toward identifying your Enneagram number. Finally, at the end of each show, I highlight practical suggestions for how the Enneagram number we discussed on that week's episode can begin their transformational work and move toward becoming their best, most authentic selves. So, people, be sure to listen all the way through to the end. Now, to this week's show. I am not blowing smoke when I say Enneagram 9s, otherwise known as the peacemakers, are well represented in my universe of relationships. My wife Annie is a 9, my daughter Maddie is a 9, and, as you'll soon learn, a disproportionate number of my friends are 9s as well. On this week's show, we decided to try something new. We invited not one, but a panel of four Enneagram 9s into the studio to describe their experiences as members of the Peacemaker tribe. So why a panel? Based on my experience in live workshops, people learn more about different Enneagram types when they hear people who self-identify as that number talk about their way of being in the world. So this week, I brought in four really good friends, singer-songwriter Andy Gullihorn, guitarist, businessman, and five-time Grammy nominee Randy Williams, my sobriety coach and counselor David Hampton, and Chris Gonzalez, PhD, a marriage and family therapist and director of the MFT program at Lipscomb University. We didn't know what would happen when we stuffed me, my guest co-host Rabbi Evan Moffick, my producer Chad Michael Snavely, and four other guys into our tiny recording studio. But as you'll soon hear, it was magic. I've hosted or been a guest on a lot of podcasts, but seriously, this is one of the most entertaining and enlightening shows I've ever been a part of. So, with no further ado, let's get to it. Well, welcome to Typology, everybody. I wish you could be in the recording booth here at Weld Community Space in Nashville, Tennessee, because there are one, two, three, four, five, six of us in a space that is probably, I'm guessing, eight by eight, maybe, <laughs> at a table. At a table, <laughs> and three mics, and a right. partridge and a pear tree. So I have in the room here four Enneagram nines, and myself, I'm a four, and, and my friend, Rabbi Evan Moffick, who's been a sort of a guest co-host today on a couple of episodes of Typology, and he's a three, 
by the way. So it's good to have one person in the room who has some ambition beyond, you know, it's good. You can, you can, you can kind of like, you know, Keep everything in order here. Yeah, yeah. Make it efficient and productive. That'd be good. So, so here was the logic or the story behind why I chose today to have four Enneagram nines here. My friend, Andy Gullihorn, who is sitting to my right. Hi, Ian. Hi. Hi, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for making your presence known. Sure. Thanks for serving yourself. <laughs> so Andy said to me one day that he was getting together with a group of guys who were all nines on the any. What was – Randy, you and Andy, Randy, a couple of the guys, Gabe Dixon and, and – who's it, Matt G- Gilder? Uh, Gabe Scott and Matt Gilder. Okay, Gabe. so Gabe Scott, I mean. Was, was Randall Good Game there? I can't remember. He he could have been invited, but may have forgotten. He took a nap, and that's it. So yeah. um, anyway, uh, you told me that this group of nines was getting together. I mean, it sounds like a support group for nines. What what was the name of the group, though? Uh, we called it the Peace Summit. <laughs> <laughs> you called it the Peace Summit, and so for those of you who don't know, nines on the Enneagram are called the Peacemakers, hence the Peace Summit. Yeah. And um, I'm married to a nine. I am the father to a nine. My life has been greatly enhanced by knowing and loving nines, including these four guys. I mean, I, I, I know you from Randy, we, you and your wife, Katie, and two of our closest friends, Chris, my confessor, David, my sponsor, <laughs> my, my AA sponsor or, or my... My certified alcoholism counselor, thank you very much, is in the room. And Andy, of course, dear friends, I'm such a fan. We've done, I don't know how many retreats together, gosh, between Lady Lodge and Telemachus Conference in Florida. I mean, just what a treasured friend you you guys are. Um, But I thought today what would be cool is, you know, when you have a panel, right, you just get so many perspectives. And you get to interact with each other. And people get to hear you all talk about what it's like to be nines, which is better than me just describing it. They get to really pick it up. And I thought it'd be fun. And you're drinking beers, except for David and I, who are very true. Just we're just observing. <laughs> just, just because watching. Yeah, because <laughs> because this episode would not end well if David and I were drinking. There's not enough beer. It's like boys in the booth time, you know, it's like a sweat lodge. It's a nine sweat lodge in here. I think the temperature is already about eight hundred degrees. So the underlying motivation for nines is a need to keep the peace, to maintain status quo, to keep relational connection going. And the hallmark feature, of course, is to avoid conflict at all costs, right? Their deadly sin or their passion, for those of you who don't know, is men. Sloth. Sloth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was out of the Muppets. Right? <laughs> All right, so which one of you boys would like to tell people what sloth is? I'll let. But they're all pointing to Chris, Chris Gonzalez, the only marriage and family therapist at the table. What's what is sloth? For, for sloth. <sighs> well, <laughs> sloth c- could manifest in a couple ways. It could be just not doing anything. It could be slow to get started mm-hmm. doing something. Uh, or it can be doing anything but that thing you ought to be doing. Okay. That, like, the worst thing, I think, for someone who's a nine is, like, fake meaningful things. Facebook could trick you into thinking it's a meaningful exercise, Right. Mm-hmm. There's something else you should be doing. 
but I got to get this post out. I got to <laughs> – somebody might not know that what Donald Trump said is offensive. So I got to make sure that everybody knows that. But there's really I, – I should be doing something else, right? Yeah. And so there's that that piece where you can be very active and very, very energized and, and doing a lot of things but avoiding that thing you should be doing. So, so replacing essential tasks with inessential tasks. Right. right that's sort of a hallmark feature, mm-hmm. feature of nine. So, you know, in Enneagram literature, right, the sloth refers to spiritual laziness, right? It's a um, unwillingness to at times when, when, you know, nines are in that sort of averaged unhealthy space. It's a, really a desire to be unaffected by life. The spiritual laziness is a going, a falling asleep, to your own ambitions, desires, uh, your own priorities, your own agen- life agenda. It's, it's a, almost a refusal to rise up and take hold of your own, like Mary Almer says, wild and precious life and mm-hmm. to really live it, but rather at times to merge with the agenda or the priorities, ambitions, dreams of another person that has all kinds of in service to avoiding conflict, right? And keeping and maintaining that inner hakuna matata, right? So let me let me just go around the room for a sec, or just you know just chime in. But what's it like to be a nine? Someone just let's talk about what it's like to be a nine. Well, uh, this is Randy Williams. Um, building on what you just said, sloth for me, and when you when you describe it in that those terms, it's like if I were to fantasize about having a lot of money, it's not because I want a lot of things, it's because I want to not have to do things. Or, or if I want to fantasize about like my perfect life or when things get really tough or difficult, I fantasize about being Thomas Merton and living in a cave and being unaffected by the people and things around me. Mm. That, that to me mm-hmm. sounds like perfect. That's why on vacation I like to go places where little to do. I'm not a Disneyland vacationer. I'm a escape away from things vacationer. Like Encinitas, California. Like Encinitas, California, and not Orlando. Right. With the Crons. We didn't, With it, the Crons. Just, I can go ahead and say that. Yeah. And <laughs> it was an awesome time. It was a great time. A good a good and fun time by all. David, what, what, tell me, what's it like to be a nine? Like, what do you, what stands out to you as a hallmark feature for you? Um, it depends on the healthy or the unhealthy nine, whichever I'm going to be that day, I guess. Um, it is uh, realizing that the pleasing of everyone is actually part of the way I'm wired. But I have to actually swim against that, and that can actually cause me conflict, <laughs> which I hate. Right. And uh, so at the end of the day, um, for me, uh, part of – just not to get into sobriety right away, but part of my whole sobriety was waking up to the fact that I had opinions mm. um, because I had I, – uh, alcohol worked for me because I put myself to sleep. Um, yeah. And I could stay asleep for a long time. And then when I got sober, I realized that I did have opinions and I did have uh, things that I cared about deeply that I had ignored. And um, I suddenly uh, wanted to know a lot of things. And that was kind of counterintuitive. But I also realized that that brought conflict and it made me uncomfortable. So it was kind of a catch-22. But mm. being a nine has been a revelation, actually, for me in that – that it's really uh, just part of my perfectionism and part of my paralysis with perfectionism. Uh, that's, I think, where my, part of my sloth comes from. I don't do things because I can't do them perfectly, mm-hmm. so I just don't do them. <laughs> and uh, 
it, but it explained it. <laughs> so you actually were describing something. I think, I think it's important for people to know that one of the features for nines is uh, as a way of being in the world as a defense is narcotizing, right? They numb out. They, they'll think it's relaxation when actually it's, it's eating too much, laying on the couch watching TV mm-hmm. or it's drinking. Or mm-hmm. I mean, nines, I think, are in terms of addictions, are particularly prone to it because what they really want to do, what they really want to put to sleep or numb out is not only their anger, which because they're in that anger triad, but also their desires. Mm. As desires rise, you know, mm. it's almost like, oh, no, desire, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the things you were talking about, David, right. it's like, I got to put that dog to sleep or it could cause some conflict in the area. You know what I mean? If, mm-hmm. I, if I have to give expression to that, if I got to bump into people or, or people's competing priorities, that's going to cause a lot of stress. And I don't really right. want that. So I got to put it to sleep. Right. 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 Andy, you're being very quiet. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Compliment. (laughs) I was thinking uh, along those lines, it's, it's, uh, I think a good side to me about being a nine, what I've always liked is that I think we're easy to get along with. And that's also the good and the bad side. I think the, uh, for me, when I'm realizing the ugly side, what you're talking about desires, when you, when I feel that coming up, uh, I, think I just felt like I had to squash it because it it could be a point of conflict if it if it conflicted with what somebody else wanted. Um, so a, a bad side of the nine, I think, is what happens is I, I try to even if I'm not paying attention to what I want, it's coming up somehow, mm. and I'm trying to get other people to want it, uh, so I don't have to say that I want it. So that's where the passive aggressive stuff comes out for me. Mm. I'm trying to find ways to. You know, I mean, a typical example would be going to eat somewhere, although I don't I don't know how passive-aggressive I am about picking restaurants, but it would look like, you know, me saying, oh, I really don't care where we go. But then trying to influence uh, a decision so that it's not mine, because if it's mine, then, then, then the conflict is mine as well. That's not my favorite part of being a nine, but uh, it's one of them. Brandy, mm. how long have you known the Enneagram? I've probably known it or known of it for about, 10 years, but really, honestly, just since getting to know you have, I really learned it. Two years? And right. then you pegged me last year as a nine. Right. Walked me through that. Right. And uh, a couple of years. Chris, a yeah. couple of years. Okay. David? Yeah, I've known about it for a couple of years, but then really intensely since you and I have started. Right. Spending since time. you've been keeping me sober. Since I've been keeping you sober. Every Thursday morning yes. at, right. at 8 o'clock. Which is yes. all me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, how about you? Uh, my parents were into it growing up, so I, I knew I was a nine. I think decided I was a nine when I was like sixteen, so about <laughs> really twenty five years or twenty five years ago. Couldn't possibly be that. You can't possibly be that old. You look so rested. Oh, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm very slothful. Oh right. So all right. So everybody's got a story. Give me. Do you, any of you guys got a quintessential nine story about yourselves or about one of the other people in this little circle of nineness? That sort of captures your nineness that you what like what would your spouses partners or friends say you know we're like uh, oh yeah i got a nine story about so and so what do you got i i've got <laughs> this is a this is a nine on on two levels okay so i have a a story a memoir story that i'm working on called invisibility lessons mm. and it's it's about really early childhood and i have an older brother who is attracted to conflict. And I watched how that went for him and decided that wasn't the way I wanted to go. 
and he I mean he was a lightning rod to you know discipline issues and and all that it, you know it he, he wasn't horrible he he was good but he was he was just gonna and he's listening right now and yeah, yeah so Jay I love you brother um, you paved a way for me uh, uh, and I got clear sailing behind your wake of uh, destruction <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> um, but. I saw how that went for him, and I decided I'm going to do the opposite of that. I'm going to get as quiet as I can be. I'm going to pass for invisible. Uh, I don't want I, – I see where conflict can get somebody, and I don't want that. This story is partially written because it's a thing I really, really want to do, <laughs> and everything gets in the way of it. So that's on another level. That's on the sloth level. This is a, a meaningful story for me that that I could really, really build on. Uh, and it's in a file somewhere with a hundred other stories that I'm going to get to someday. Right? right. Yeah. That, I'll that's get to the, someday. Yeah. Is the get to someday or I'm going to have to and leave it in my wake. Right? Yeah. Because, yeah. of course, nines have a reputation for getting started on a task, getting halfway through it, and then suffering mission drift. You know what I mean? Like they just sort of get going and, or they get distracted by something else or – and then off they go. In fact, this past week, I got the picture in my in my phone. Uh, I came back from three weeks on the road. And when I left, my wife, Ann, nine, is on the porch with a scrubbing brush trying to get a tag off a jute rug that was on the porch, right? It was like stuck on there with tape, you know, whatever, glue. And she's got a brush and she's got a thing of water and she's going at it. So I come back three weeks later. The brush is still on the, on the porch. The bowl... The tape is still half. She got halfway through the tape. This is three weeks later, and it's still there on the porch, right? So I just took a picture of it. I just it's like <laughs> I, got, I had to get a timestamp on this thing. And, of course, it's charming at one level. You know, I think it's kind of endearing. But for a lot of nines, right, it's kind of frustrating because you're like, well, I still have a half-cocked bathtub or, a, you know, a half-clean garage or, or whatever. I think she's waiting for you to do your half. Oh, is that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 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 that may be the case, actually. That may be the case. You got anyone else? Come on. That that, that is me. I mean, I am, I have the hardest time prioritizing things because everything's a priority. And, and so if I come home and uh, I need to get on, let's say I need to work on, you know, reimbursements for our company, which is something that's due tomorrow. There's something in my mind, and my wife could probably articulate this better because she observes it in a much keener fashion. I observe it in a very blurry way. But I will walk in, and I will need to caulk the bathroom because it needs to get done, and so why not caulk the bathroom now? Or why not – I need to mow the yard uh, because – and that's mowing the yard has always been the, the, the big numbing out thing for me. Well, it's got to get mowed. When's it going to get mowed? I've got to get it mowed. It's not raining. It's going to rain tomorrow. You know, I can come up with a litany of reasons why this has to be done right now. And, um, and that's, that's my big – I think that's one of my biggest um, issues as a, as a nine is learning how to prioritize and say what is essential, what's non-essential when it all seems essential. Mm. So what you're saying is that right, – so it's true that nines struggle with trying to figure out priorities, like, mm-hmm. you know, and putting things in a sort of a sequence of what needs to get done and then finding the energy to actually get going on it. The upside, of course, is that – I think part of that is, is that nines have a – you know, like – I mean, you're a three, right? You have yeah. laser-like focus. Like, you have a laser focus. 
And one of the gifts and the, the blights for a nine is they have a diffuse attention. It's like it's almost like it sort of sees everything broadly all at once. It's not sequential necessarily. It's just their attention is everywhere, which would make you a great songwriter because you're observing and able to be in touch with everything all at once. It's like you're just taking it all in as nines do. Like they're perched on top of the Enneagram. It's almost like they have the best view of the landscape of life compared to all the other numbers, you know. But it does make setting priorities hard, right? Because, you know, everything looks equally important. Mm-hmm. Everything looks equally important for nines. Yeah. What do you, you, what do you got, Andy? You got a funny, you got a you know, nine story? Along those lines, this is, I was just thinking about this today, that one of the last times we talked, uh, I think I was talking about 2016 for me and how I hardly wrote any songs. I don't know if I wrote any at all. And I was saying that one of the reasons why I was having a hard time is because I needed to write songs. So usually... Songs would come, you know, as a mowing the yard kind of thing. You know, I had to force myself to start writing songs this year. And I was thinking about this uh, this past week. I'm coming up on a deadline for turning in a record that I'm working on with a friend. And so uh, in the last week, I've written five songs because I shouldn't be writing songs, because I should be working on the record. I need something like that to, like, to me, songwriting is an escape from that. So when songwriting is the goal, then I just... I can't do it. It's a, doing what is inessential. Uh, so it's helpful for me. Uh, mm. So you're saying you've leveraged it for the, for the good. I'm no not way. on purpose, <laughs> but I'm glad to have the songs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably turn the record in late, but, you know, who knows? So is that because, like, nines usually don't like to be told what to do, and they hate press, being pressured? So usually I always think of that as being – they don't like being pressured by somebody else to do something. But do you guys resent, or not resent, but resist when life pressures you to do something? Yeah. I typically file my taxes in October. Right. By the way, I haven't done my taxes yet. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I know that feeling, yeah. David, what about you? You got a nine, like sort of a quintessential nine story for yourself? Well, a little bit, yeah. I um, I have been going to list my house for six months because <laughs> 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 right. I want to get it at the top of the market, you know. Right. And uh, so, uh, my daughter, who's also my realtor, by the way, only gave me three things to do. She said, "If we can do these three things, then I think the house would be ready to to go, and and we'll and we'll be good." And none of the three things do I have to actually do except pick up the phone. I mean, I literally only have to pick up the phone and call three people. And um, I am going. I I am going to do that soon. <laughs> so yes. But does it create anxiety for you? Like when you got something to do and it's like you're looking at it. You know, well, it does. But here's what it also does. I it it eliminates conflict because I'm not arguing with anyone about anything yet. Because oh. I haven't called anyone. So I'm not haggling over prices. I'm not um, in a competition with people about, uh, you know, what they want to pay me for my house or not. And mm. my daughter would handle that anyway. But um, but it eliminates my conflict. That procrastination eliminates my conflict. And so it, and it, here's, a, here's a really lame example. Somebody will um, email me or, or text me and say, hey, would you like to go to dinner tomorrow night? And if I don't want to go, I just sort of forget to text them back. Okay, now, th- is this why you don't text me back? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that's, I mean, that's lame, but it would create conflict if I said I don't really want to go, um, so I'm just kind of procrastinating to put off the conflict. But doesn't it cause more conflict by not 
Probably, the text? probably yes. Um, but you know, in the moment, you in the moment, yes, you can put that. That's, that's, that's yeah. future conflict. That's, that's that doesn't even count yet, and that why, might not happen. That's don't right. do today. Why you? Wait a second. How's it go? Why do today? <laughs> Never do today what you can put off tomorrow. And that's that. Is that a mantra for? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in my most unhealthiest mode, yeah. I'm not going to do today if I can even put it off again tomorrow. All right. So, Blackworth, my friend Suzanne, I. I do believe, for me personally, that if I could be a number on the Enneagram, it's sort of a tie between a healthy seven, like Stephen Colbert, you know, or a really healthy nine, because I think that nines are the most spiritually, naturally inclined number on the Enneagram. Um, That when people are evolved to their highest level spiritually, I think it's into that nine space, you know. So for all of our kind of sitting here and making fun of the, you know, the peccadillos and the, by the way, I did just use the word peccadillo. <laughs> um, so, but with all the foibles and the quirks and the, you know, little sins of, of nines, it's, it is important to remember that, that at their healthiest, I mean, we're talking like the Dalai Lama or Pope Francis or some of these great, hold on a second, Ra- Rabbi, come here for a second. You yeah. got to get close to that. Do we, do we have a Jewish nine? Yeah, who's oh. a great Who's a great Jewish famous nine that would just came, captures a oh. nine spirit? Well, there's a guy. There's a rabbi named Abraham Joshua Heschel. Oh yeah. And I think he. I think he was a nine. I think he was. He was. He was quite open, and uh, you know, really an evolved kind of spiritual person. But I was also thinking of. I was thinking about my own life, and a lot of my closest friends are nines. So I happen to think. I think nines make good friends. Oh yeah. Now, now maybe that's just for I don't know. Maybe it's my threeness and and, and kind of sort of contrasting with nineness. But I think they're they're good. They're, there's a kind of a kindness that can really relate to so many different people. So uh, I think nines, most nines I know, have a lot of friends and are very good friends. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you from my experience with you four guys and my wife and my daughter Maddie is that you are as a group, kind, gracious. You give people lots of room to grow at their own pace. There's no pressure, you know. Mm-hmm. You, one thing I think is like you're fast to love, you're quick to love, and you're very slow to judge. Nines are not at all judgmental. You're real, pretty guileless. You know, you're, you're all usually terrible liars. I mean, most nines I know are terrible liars um, because I think there's a certain openness. It's kind of, you know, it. A lot of teachers say that nines are the least complicated, which doesn't mean simple-minded, right? But just the what you see is what you get people. I mean, they're just the least complicated number on the Enneagram. I'm a four, eh, unfortunately. I'll be the most complicated number on the Enneagram. But, but there are so many things I love about nines who, you know, for me, remind me like that Julian Norwich quote that, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. You know, for me, as a four, I just don't see the universe that way. You, you know, I, I tend to get all twisted up inside, and nines kind of remind me, like, you know, the, who was it? Chris, you, you were the one who said that uh, the, the background music, like that nines are spa music. You said they were like <laughs> spa, spa music. music in the background, you know, like when you, get, when you get a massage, you know. So it's like, man, that, but I need that. Like I need that presence of peace and the sort of non-judgmental presence and just, just kind of a groundedness and peace because the last thing I often have is peace, you know. I think what what I like about that is is in a healthy way being able to merge. You've got someone who's a 
who's a three and they're achieving and they're focused and they've uh, they they know what they're about. And the nine can come in and not just affirm that, but they can also. I can see myself as going that way. The nine would never do it themselves, but if there's a three there doing it, the the nine comes in kind of like the the VP or just the the number one fan or cheerleader and and can imagine we're doing this together. Um, but if that three falls off, that that nine's doesn't would not know what to do. They're not a good successor for that vision or for uh, a four. And depending on how, which, which way the four is doing their fourness, it, it wouldn't matter because that nine can imagine themselves kind of like a four. I'm, I'm kind of a four a little bit now with you here. Right. Right. Maybe maybe at their best threes kind of have some of their uh, have some nineness. And then at their healthiest, nines have some threes. You know that, that mm-hmm. they they can really. I wonder how many threes and nines are married to one another too. And and so in kind of a healthy marriage, there there's sort of, you know, there's friendships, but I think they also can really bounce off one another and strengthen one another at their healthiest. Yeah. In fact, Randy, you're married to a six, a counterphobic mm-hmm. six. So is Andy. Well, mm-hmm. no, I don't know if she's counterphobic. She's phobic. Yeah. She's Jill's a phobic six. David, you were married to a one. That's right. Right. Yeah. And Chris, you're Six. married. Okay. Now, that's interesting. I cannot tell you how many 9-1 combinations I meet. Interesting. My parents, I meet more 9-1 okay. combinations than the other. What were you going to say? My parents are 9-1. Really? Mom's a 1, dad's a 9. What is up with that? I meet more couples who are 9-1. Why do you think that is? Uh, probably because the 1 has a very strong sense of who they are and what they think is right or wrong in the world. And the 9 uh, can come along and say, yeah, that is right. Or they, or they are easy to live with. And they'll let the one kind of run the show, so right. to speak. What, what, Dave, what do you think? You were married to a one. What, what is, what's the magic of that combination? Why do I run into it so often? One's the perfectionist, nice peacemakers. Yeah, I, I think I needed to be managed. I think this is a man who's been in recovery a while. He's just, he's just putting you know, it right out I, there. Yeah, it was just it worked uh, for a while. And then imagine her surprise when I had opinions uh, and got sober. But uh, yeah, I think that a lot of it is, like Randy said, um, the, the one has such a strong sense of right and wrong, black and white principles. And the world was just wide open and gray to me and it and really still is and so um i but i do think that you know she she uh in many ways was kind of the um you know she kept us out of debtor's prison and she kept me focused and things like that (laughs) so anyway well she swore they did (laughs) so i think that's actually you just gave me an insight on it which is that you know ones these principled ethical moral really together people when, when they're healthy beautiful you know but they they do a great job of keeping the world a safe place uh for others to thrive in you know mm-hmm. and so it sounds to me like what you're saying is that your your wife provided you with uh, a world in which you could thrive right mm-hmm. and i think what it's unhealthy what i've observed is that ones marry nines because they're great projects well, that happened too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's sort of like I've got to bring this person to heal and disciplined and get their you know life get be on time to places and clean up at blah blah blah. And then the nine sometimes unconsciously an unhealthy nine will marry a one because it's like I actually do need a, a handler and mm-hmm. and it would make my life easier. But 
30 mile, 30 years in the marriage, often what happens is that you see a nine who's just being picked at by an unhealthy one mm. and just being pecked and, and judged and, and always falling short. That's what I've seen happen mm. sometimes. In- there, there's another piece to it, I think, in that combination specifically. Um, what the what the one gets out of it is a counter, a credible counter voice to the inner critic. Oh. The nine uh, it isn't going to sound the same. And if they're married, they have that intimacy. So, okay, that's another voice that I have given legitimacy to that is different than my inner critic. And so it's a it's a balm. It's a salve to that constant wound that might be opening up from inside. That is a great insight I hadn't mm-hmm. even thought of. That's a great insight I hadn't thought of. So, Evan, you were just talking about something that actually is really helpful, which is, you know, where do nines go in security and stress? And so when nines are doing well, they act like healthy threes. They mm-hmm. look like healthy threes, right? They, they get on their game. They become more competitive, more sequential in thinking. Priorities get clear. They start getting stuff done. I mean, threes, you know, threes and eights, but particularly threes, they, get a, they, they are accomplishment masters. Checklists. Checklists, right? So when nines are healthy, that's where they go, you know? to a healthy three. When they're unhealthy, and this is interesting because two of you are married to sixes. Three they, of us. Three of you. Six, six, six is what just Uh-oh. happened. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. I knew that was going to happen. So, y'all, go to the low side of six, right? Get a little paranoid. World's against me. Uh, feeling a little, like, uh, more doubtful, self-doubtful, you know, than, than normal decision-making becomes, you know, more difficult. Um than usual, which is actually saying something because nines and ambivalence, right, really struggle. So what's it like being married to sixes? Because you guys are, share a line. Fascinating. It's totally awesome. It's the best. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Says the conflict avoidant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You all just bought yourself another week of conflict. I mean, it's actually pretty, I mean, it, it's, it's great for me because uh, Katie being uh, a counterphobic, six, which means she has all the same fears that a six would have, but she runs into them as opposed to avoids them. She she knows what she's feeling, when she's feeling it, what's causing it, and what to do about it, and jumps into it. And and so literally, and this, is, this has happened um, especially a lot more in the last year since really getting a hold on, on our numbers. Um, I've noticed this is she is able to literally diagram what I'm feeling in the moment, why you why you did this, how you did this, and when you responded this way, this is what was happening, and it's the most. It's actually it, it makes me angry in the moment, like how dare you tell me what I'm feeling? But then I can look, I can step back because in the moment of conflict, I'm foggy and I can't see my way out. But if I step back from it and I look at, it, I go, no, she's exactly right. She she has this keen eye of observation as a six, she can walk into a room and read it, knows, and she can tell what people are feeling. She can, it's almost like a, a sixth sense. And, uh, and I've learned to trust that. And so I will walk into a room and think everybody's cool. Everybody's okay. No one has hidden intentions or motives and nobody, everybody is, you know, wanting to get along, but she can walk into a room and she can kind of pinpoint, uh, tension that I would never notice. And, and, you know, now nearly 10 years into marriage, I've learned to trust that or at least tell myself, hey, you need to trust this and pay attention to what she's saying about that. Because my tendency is to overtrust and to um, um, give people credit 
<laughs> when they don't deserve it and uh, and and just learn to trust her sixness in those moments to say okay I'm going to pay attention to that and listen so it's been really helpful to me in her keen abilities to to read people and read rooms interesting so so folks know you know that sounds like you're talking about a, like a, a two right twos tend to walk into rooms and are able to suss out people's feelings you know but for a whole different reason right? mm-hmm. for a six it's more out of getting ready what could go wrong sort of it's like i need to know what's going on in here it's like i'm in touch with people's feelings as almost as like i want to measure the level of threat in the room you know, like what could I want to know what's happening? Who's the authority figure? Are they trustworthy in here? What's going on? Is that you guys are all nodding? Is that is that fairly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sort of like what what's going on there? Yeah. So I know the Enneagram has been a big piece in in your marriage, mm-hmm. right? Just in terms of your own development as people. What about you guys? Like Andy, what about you and, and Jill? I would I love what you said, Randy. I, um, I think uh, on a, on a downside of the nine and the six is that neither one of us are and it might just, I'm not speaking for all sixes and all nines, but neither one of us is particularly ambitious. Um, so we, we're okay. I mean, I, th- I think that's a good and a bad thing. Um, but one of the things I love about it is that, uh, well, sixes are, are always looking for the kind of the greater good for everybody else. And I think nines do that in their, their own way too. They're, they're looking to merge. They're not really judgmental. So I think as a couple, uh, it's really conducive to a great, uh, community and fellowship because we both we care sometimes to a fault about other people more than we care about ourselves um but uh i i would rather err on that side i think um and i from what i know about you guys this, i don't know if that's your story but um i kind of like being together for the greater good i don't know if that makes sense to you but yeah mm-hmm. absolutely so anger i want to talk about anger for a second all right because yeah, we got to banger because you're in the anger triad, which always it always amazes people that nines live next door to eights who externalize anger a little too quickly, and ones on the other side who, for whom you know all the anger goes inward, whereas for you all you're kind of a sleeper out of touch with your anger, and so it comes out sideways, kind of slant in the form of passive aggression, and I think it's harder like so because you don't want the conflict, but you still gotta let that anger out somewhere. Right. You can't, otherwise, you, I mean, nines do kind of every now and then bust that Buddha like calm and blow up. It's usually fairly impressive when they do. But but like what are you how are you growing in your knowledge of anger and what like what's how does anger work itself out in your life? <laughs> OK, that is amazing. Right there. Everyone just looked at me like like four deer in the headlight. I'll well, say this. Oh, oh. Well, we got several musicians here. Do you think some of the emotions, I don't maybe anger or just intense feeling comes out in music? I don't know if for me personally, I mean that that would be a way that I'd be maybe most connected to my emotions. Mm-hmm. I've discovered like when I heard that that nines are like like anger is just beneath the surface. It's like kind of what we're swimming in. I was like that's crazy. Nobody would describe me as an angry person. I hope, right? <laughs> Um, but a lot of the work I've done in the last few years is you know, kind of getting into it, like trusting the Enneagram to be true. It's like, okay, well, if that's true, maybe it's just something that I'm, I'm not aware of. And I've been doing a lot of work with anger, and my, you know, my therapist is talking to me about practicing you know, healthy anger so that it's not just you know, boiling over. But um, it really is, 
I feel like once I started trying to pay attention to anger, it, it makes a lot of sense. I, I, anger it really is just below the surface for me. I kind of feel like sometimes it's the only emotion that I can relate to. Whoa. That's like, an amazing like, statement. Not just relate to, but like recognize. It's kind of like I'll ask my therapist a number of times, like, okay, when we do these check-ins, how, am I, how exactly am I supposed to know what I'm feeling? I don't know if that's a nine thing or not, but like when anger happens, I can recognize it, and I'm usually running from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the other emotions, I'm kind of like, I don't really know, but anger is really easily rec- recognizable for me. So how does it, how does it come out? I don't think I can talk about it here. No, I mean, <laughs> it, it would normally come out in, in a lot of passive aggression. Just kind of saying, well, I'm not angry, but just kind of, you know. Uh, but once I started, I mean, over the last couple of years, it's, it's uh, you know, I have to practice going into the woods and beating the crap out of a tree just so I can actually know what, what uh, anger feels like, mm. you know, ha- having healthy, healthy outlets for it. Um, but, yeah, it's it, – there's not an easy answer for how, what it looks like, but it, but it is, I'll say it is um, uncontrollable. Like, like, not uncontrollable like I'm going on a rage and, like, throwing over TVs and hitting people. Though that would be cool. Yeah, that would be On tour. Cooler. Yeah. <laughs> In a hotel. Yeah. Motel 6. <laughs> but, it, but it really is, like, when it happens, it feels like what I am most afraid of because it feels like something that I had the least amount of control of feeling. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. But. Yeah. That anger is terrifying. It's terrifying. And and that I, I actively, when, when I'm not thinking about it, and when I am thinking about it, I've got this big, giant vat that I th- just, I throw it into, and I, I hope the thing doesn't crack. But it does, because it can't contain, nothing is so big and powerful it can contain all of my anger. I sound like the Hulk. Keep going because I'm, real, I'm, really, in, I'm really into this. This is great. <laughs> and, this, um, and so uh, I, I've had just dramatic explosions. I mean, I wrote, I was angry at a person one 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 time, and I was trying to figure out what to do with it. I wrote them a 21-page, single-spaced letter. Whoa. That was a a work. It <laughs> was on, a did work. Did you send it? Did you send it? And I sent it. Oh! Oh my gosh! And that's, uh, that's a treaty. You didn't was, send a letter. You sent a treaty. Yes, yes. And uh, surprisingly, it did not go well for me. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you can imagine it was very convincing. I thought in the moment. So that was many many years ago, and I've realized I can't. I can't just have these semi-annual explosions. These are not. This is not good. And so, I've been trying to like figure out how do people do ang- like when people are doing anger well. How do they do it? So I'm trying to like let it out a little bit at a time. And I'm I'm just bad at it. I'm so like I'm clumsy. Um, I like I just I have I haven't. There's no governor on it. It just like blah comes out. And and you know it'll 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 that's where that's where you know my wife Gail comes in. She's like, "Why are you so angry?" I'm like, "That was just a little bit of it. I <laughs> 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 was angry." <laughs> and and she's like, "Oh, you mean there's more?" And so she's being a sick. She's like, "How much is in there? This is this." And so I'm I'm trying to get good at it, but I don't know that I'm ever going to get good at it. 
but it's 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 scary because I know how volatile and explosive it can be. Right. And Randy, you've you've told me before you've had some fairly big volcanic. Yeah, I can. <clears throat> I get sloppy. I'm just sloppy, just like Chris was saying. I'm really sloppy in my anger. And um, I I grew up in a really conservative Southern denomination in the church, and and where I was taught that you know anger was basically wrong. And and so I grew up not only just with this sort of temperament that likes to avoid tension, but I also grew up with this very um, strong theological um, uh, teaching that <clears throat> that anger was wrong. And so mm-hmm. when I felt those negative feelings, it didn't feel godly to me. Mm-hmm. And so not only was I pushing it down out of my own temperament, I was pushing it down out of theological responsibility. And I have a pretty strong one wing as well, having grown up with a, a one mom. And so it was very important to me to retain uh, this sense of godliness. And so, which which a lot of that had to do with, you know, anger and emotions and, or those negative emotions. And and so what ended up happening over time is you create this this facade that is the person on the outside while the person on the inside is like could be boiling or just swimming in hurt or loneliness, but the, over time it just becomes such a reflex that, that the facade becomes what you think is your, your truest self. And I, I, can't, I can't tell you how many times over the years saying, I, I just never get angry. I'm just not an angry person. I don't ever get mad. Thinking that I didn't and also thinking that I had really reached some sort of Buddha-like spiritual maturity because I was able to control my anger when actually I just had learned to pacify it and not express it. Mm. David, what are you thinking? You're looking pensive. and No, I'm just listening and, and really resonating with what Randy just said because I also grew up in a really uh, fundamental ideology about anger that was wrong. Anger was sinful. Anger was bad. And good people don't express anger. Um, in, uh, in any way really was the message that I got. And so there's really, like you said, there were really only a couple of ways to manage that. One was to either become, you know, to the Buddha level of Zen or, (laughs) um, and, uh, or it is to create that, you know, cardboard cutout that we put up in front of us everywhere we go. And that becomes who we are. And so, uh, anger is a fearful emotion to me. It's a scary emotion. And um, so, what, what does that mean? Scary is kind of generic. It scares me when I get angry. I I am uneasy with myself when I get angry. I don't trust anger. And so, what I will do sometimes are these mental gymnastics where um, I convince myself that the person that just offended me probably meant something else. Mm. You know, um, and so yeah. that that brings the conflict. Um, level down to maybe a six from a nine, but you know that. But at the same time, I do have times where I've just been explosive because I didn't know what to do with the rage that was inside of me. And I have a, um, you know, those old lawyers' bookcases that have the four doors. They're stacked and the door swings open. I've got one right now with the bottom door doesn't have any glass. 
in it <laughs> for a reason. <laughs> and uh, what happened is uh, that happened about um, five years ago. And I was I was completely raging, and I just put my foot through it. And I'm going to replace that glass. <laughs> by the way, that is funny. Once the house is on the market, yeah. Once the house is on the market, yeah. as soon as I get this house sold, I'm going to get that glass That's, paint. That fixed. glass is going to some of the equity is going to go to replace the glass. <laughs> Perfect. So I have a question for you, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about this later. I'm in recovery. Mm-hmm. You're in recovery. Um, and maybe this is a good question for all of us. I mean, I just think addiction is part of the human condition right? for every every number on the Enneagram, right? There's no such thing as someone who's not in recovery. You know, we, we could honestly say that pretty much everyone's a recovering child. I mean, you know, it's sort of – that's just a, a a great human truth. But what – was drinking or – for you – and I, I could talk about it as a four, but was it a way of dealing with desire and anger? Was it a way to cope with – Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I learned at 13 when I took my first drink that I'd been lied to all my life. This was wonderful. You know, oh, this, alcohol was wonderful. Yeah, alcohol was wonderful because I didn't feel anxious, perfectionistic, angry, um, anything negative. God loved me more when I drank. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I know that feeling. Yeah, oh, it's awesome. Yeah. We had great conversations. I yeah. just don't remember that many of them. Yeah. But it really seriously was the way I managed a lot of emotions, but especially anger. When I would be fearful, I didn't have to respond to something. I could drink at them, right? You know, and that's what I did. So, what are nines angry at? I mean, so angry is just you know that's now we're just talking about it in general. What is what are nines angry about? I mean, earlier I said you know trying to, but I, it's what, there's what's a, going on. There's an accumulative effect of unaddressed offenses, unaddressed conflict. Where I know for me. There's a conflict between me and another person. That other person doesn't know it because I took it all. Mm. I located what should have been between us, and, and I just ate it. And so there, for me, there's this cumulative effect. Uh, and it can go un – like I can do that and not know it 50 times in a row. And everybody's happy. And I think I'm happy because that big vat that I have has, hasn't – cracked yet Mm. and so um to to be aware of a conflict and to locate it in its proper place between me and the other person and to meaningfully even though it's uncomfortable address that is just too much work Mm. i'll just eat it yeah plus you'll eat it because let's just stay out of conflict yeah yeah right sure so so and after a while that accumulation the anger is that that, yeah that's the source of the anger Resentment, anger, is it? What? Well, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's the accumulative effect. And so there could be one uh, substantial conflict. But then there's also, I think, there are regrets that come along with being a nine. Ooh. When putting off yourself for whatever else, uh, whether it's because I don't know what I want or I know what I want, but we'll go with yours. I'll merge with you rather than have what I want. There's a boneyard of regret that is probably substantial. uh, And wandering into that and picking up those bones, that can, those memories come up. I should have, I would have, I could, and that, that can bubble over. Okay. I got some head nods in the room. Randy, what do you, what do you, what do you? Well, that was 
Chris, that was a moment for me. <clears throat> and, uh, um, because one of the things that I'm really working through right now, just books and conversations, is this the concept of differentiation, mm. emotional differentiation. Bring, yeah, bring that out. That's a big piece. Well, I haven't learned it yet, but what I have learned uh, is that it's the ability to, in the moment, see yourself as an individual, see that other person as an individual, and you all, and you know, and their emotions, anger, reaction does not have an effect on me and who I am and what I am and my value. And, and I, um, that's really hard for me. It's because if you're angry with me, I'm going to feel terrible and I'm going to try to fix it. I'm going to try to salve it. I'm going to try to, uh, <clears throat> maybe minimize it. Uh, like, Oh no, no, that's not that bad here. We'll, we'll do this. We'll fix this or whatever. Um, and so what, what I'm, I'm trying to learn to do is in that moment, when there is conflict or maybe even potential conflict, kind of own what that is and speak where it comes from, whether it's, you know, shame in my own story or regret. And, and I think what Chris said is right. I think one of the things about learning differentiation and learning not to merge and, and, and what that looks like is that I have spent most of my childhood and adult life doing things that people thought that I should have done or doing things that came easy or naturally or kind of fell into my lap career-wise um, as opposed to really knowing who I was, what I wanted, figuring out my passions and going for those things. And I look back and, and say, you know, I went to school. I wanted to be an English teacher and I wanted to write, but mm. I never did. I've never done any of that. So, so that's part that, of that, yeah. I think that's where that anger comes from. And, it, and it's, it's, it's less anger like rage and I'm so mad I want to hit something. It's more like passion of wanting to change something. Yeah, so that's a really great thing because I think <clears throat> sometimes people think anger is just, you know, an explosive uh, emotional reaction that arises when someone or something has placed an obstacle in the way of what we want, right? Uh, so, or an offense. Or yeah, an offense. or Yeah, or, yes, so, or has, pre <laughs> has presented... Uh, offended what we perceive to be are the image that we want to project, right? To the, or we want to believe is true about ourselves. But really, it's also really just about the anger there is for nines is a disconnect with the good anger, which is the anger that helps us to rise up and take hold of life. The, the anger, so put it this way, eights are overly plugged in to the intense instinctual drives in life that motivate change. They're too plugged into it. It's overwhelming. Nines uh, if, 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 you know, you think about eights are on like 240 volt, right? All other numbers are at 120 and nines, if they're in that average unhealthy space, are at 90. They're just not plugged in enough to the anger, that force, that instinctual drive, that intensity, that, that move other people to, to get going, you know, in some ways. So it's not just anger, like the way we think about it typically. Andy, what do you, what, for you, what's the anger thing about? I think these guys said it so well. I, I just like I wouldn't be able to say anything as eloquent as they did. It was, it was. Uh, I'm just thinking about ways that that's totally true for me. Mm. And plus, you also got the word boneyard of regret. You got yeah, that phrase that as a songwriter. Thank you. Well, the songwriters room went. We we're looking for scrambling for pencils <laughs> when they heard boneyard of regret, right? Right. Oh my gosh. Well, uh, Evan, you are a three on the enneagram. You are an achiever. You are a performer. You are. If anything, 
you are, I mean, there's so many ways that you are different than fours, like I'm a four and nines. As you sit here and listen to all of this as a three, what are you thinking and feeling? Although you're a three, so feeling might take us a little too long for us to get you in touch with that yeah. all at <laughs> once. True. But, but what, 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 what are you observing in here? Rabbi, what do you what do you think? It's actually been so it's it's been incredibly powerful. I, I think there's a I sometimes wear my heart on my sleeves, right? Where where emotions, you know, anger, anything will come out pretty easily and quickly. And so hearing the difficulty or or the the struggle with that has has been incredibly instructive. But I've also actually come to see my own path the trying to be a healthy three as learning some some things from nines. Uh, and I also, as a rabbi, thought a lot about the word shalom uh, because shalom means peace. And we've talked about peace as, as part of uh, the goal of nines. But the thing about shalom is it's both outer peace and inner peace. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew root shalem, which means to complete or integrity. And so I was thinking that a healthy nine in some ways is truly embodies shalom. Mm-hmm. They find that that they're they're great friends, they're they're great peacemakers on the outside, but they also the 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 struggle, the shadow side, or or, or where where the healthiness can really shine is is if they find that shalom on the inside, that integrity, uh, and the the passion, and I I think that perhaps some of those. Um, some of that struggle can express themselves in creativity, in music, in writing. Uh, I think, uh, and and I've just been really, it's been incredibly instructive in that way. And I think the more three, the more time three spend around nines, I think it actually can improve our own health and 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 healthiness uh, and sensibility. Mm. And and actually, you just you hit on something, and and I want to get make sure we get to something before we end, but. And that is, this, this speaks to that whole spirituality piece for me about nines. When nines are healthy, they're self-aware, they're growing. They do reach that place where you're talking about, which is not just peace as the absence of conflict, right? That's, a, that's really cheap. That's just a cheap imitation of what real peace is, right? That's just evasion. That's life evasion, right? But they, they reach a place of shalom, which is this sense of ultimate well-being, right, of a sense of belonging in the universe, um, being connected to all things, which, of course, think about nines, right? Remember, I was talking about that open attention. Like, like nines, I mean, their sense of the world around them, they're almost porous. You know, they, 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 they really are able to connect to so many people and things in, in, the, in the world around them. And I, I think the other thing about nines and, and spirituality is their they because of this merging thing right so when you merge with another person or a group in order to put to slip which which requires you to delete yourself essentially to erase your own desires and priorities and agenda in order to merge with that or the other you got to make room for the other to occupy that space right but because you have that first step it's an unhealthy step but if you tweak it a little bit when you get healthy is you you are ahead of all of us on the journey toward union with God and others. So that's that's an amazing gift. Like I it's going to take me longer than most nines I know to get to that. And that is the goal in the spiritual life is union with God 
and with the world around us, right? It's, but when union doesn't require you to delete yourself, you remain yourself, but in union, like almost like two candles where you're just joining the flame and the flame is burning. You can't, you can't differentiate the, the two flames, but there are two candles there. And so that's the, the gift that, that you bring to us is like you're kind of natural mystics in mm-hmm. a way. You really have this ability when you're healthy to, to experience union with God and show us the way there in ways that is really hard, much harder for the rest of us. You know, do you feel good about yourself right now? I have a question for the, for the priest and the rabbi. So we have a joke. There's no, a I don't priest have a joke. And a rabbi. It's, it's actually actually a genuine question. Like, so when, if I read scripture and and, and uh, the notion of self sacrifice and dying to yourself, um, as a nine, to me that is, I, I think my, the unhealthy side of me and unhealthy side of nine is the concept of dying to yourself, self sacrifice, is that deletion. So what what does a healthy, um, mystical spiritually mature person look like who understands what real self-sacrifice dying to yourself uh, what does that look like how does mm-hmm. that play out okay so let's get the from the the jewish tradition perspective and then i'll give you the christian jewish perspective i mean the christian <laughs> jewish i'll give you the scientology perspective on it. all right get right on the mic there Rabbi. the uh so interesting question i think to me, what my, my initial response is to think about this idea in Judaism, which is actually a mystical idea uh, from, from Kabbalah, from Jewish mysticism, is that human beings are partners with God in the work of creation and that God relies on us to bring God's ideas and commandments and values into the world. So, yes, we are, we, we, we are meant to have a sense of sacrifice and obligation, but we're also uniquely endowed by God, created in in God's image as human beings, as partners, as people who work on creation. So in order to be truly devout, we have to exercise that responsibility that only we can have. So we can't just simply lose ourselves. You know, you can't, in Judaism, there really isn't even the concept of of hermits, of of asceticism. Uh, Life is... To be made sacred. There's a Jewish thinker named uh, Martin Buber, who was also very influential in the Christian world, and he talked about the holy and the not yet holy. And part of our task is to take the not yet holy and make it holy. So there is a huge space for human activity and responsibility. Mm. Wow, that was cool. Everything belongs. Everything belongs, yeah. Okay, so actually this is a good question for me because it, it's something I'm writing about now in, in, in my, my new book, which is creating a great deal of anxiety. But um, so one of the ways that when Paul talks about, um, remember the, the text, for I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God, right? Uh, who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that what it is roughly? I just gave it the Incron translation. It's got it's about 118 degrees in here, so I'm starting to lose my mind. Um, <laughs> so w- when Paul says I there, the word is ego, from which we get ego. So I'm going to make a radical statement here. This is, but I've been studying the Eastern Orthodox lately, getting ready to write this book, and Thomas Merton, of course, my hero, Andy. What Paul is talking about there, the I he's talking about, is the false self. It's actually what we are like when we are living in the belief or identifying with our personality. 
Does that make sense to you guys? In other words, your personality is basically a cover story, covering over your true self, right? Defending it, protecting it. Um, and, you know, when you, override, when you live asleep to that reality, you, and, uh, you identify with your personality as being who you are, but your personality is not who you are, right? In a way, it is the sort of the seat of the false self. It's your ego. I mean, another way of saying false self is ego. And the ego is really, it's, its goal is to get the rest of the world to organize its priorities around, right, the, the priorities of the person that's, you know, at, at play here, right? So a lot of ways, our number, our personality is, oh, we train people out of it. We can manipulate people with it. We get people to do what we want with it. You, you know, so it has a lot of different functions. Merton, the Eastern Orthodox, would say this, that the false self that he's talking about is this very thing, this this nineness, this foreness, right, that we think we are, this constructed narrative. Like, this is my story. I am a nine. I am a four. And basically what he's saying is, no, that's what's got to die. What has to die is that story, that constructed narrative from childhood, that that's who you are. It's not, it's just, it's just a group of, you know, adaptive stratagems, defense mechanisms, ways of being in the world that are actually are obscuring your true self. And your true self in the Christian tradition is Randy Williams hidden in Christ. It's your givenness, you know, it's your givenness to the, in the world. So the most important journey for, from one perspective is, is for you in the course of a lifetime and me to move from the false self to the true self because it's the true self that will m most be able to give glory to God. Like, think of it this way, like, human beings are the only creatures in creation that can actually mask their true identity. Horses can't pretend to be other than horses. You know, trees can't pretend to be other than trees. And that's how they give glory to God is by being a horse or by being a tree. But you and I have the agency and the ability to hide our true selves from others for lots of reasons. So to learn how to live into the true self is, in fact, like for Merton, what it means to become a saint, which I think is a beautiful goal. And I don't think most people have a goal in their faith. It's really to become the true self, you know. Did that make any sense at all? Or is that all weird esoteric bizarreness right there? Because that, that's what I'm trying to articulate these no, days I, for people. I, what came to mind is um, in our life group at church, we 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 went through the, the road back to you. I'm sorry. Is everyone still okay? We may, we, may, we still love each other. Yeah, it's great. Um, th there's an eight in our, in our group. And uh, as she was articulating how she lives uh, in, in that world, I found myself being envious because she knows how she feels the moment she feels a feeling. It was like, I thought, if I could do that, I would, I would know who I am. I would know what I'm about. It would be clear. It, it would be instantly clear. Now, of course, that's not true, um, but there was that sense of of that that desire to to it's like I, in, in that moment I got it that I've got to find the me that this uh, nine encases, mm -hmm. and I think there's part of that hidden in the eight, and then then when our 
uh, friend who's a five was talking and how clearly they are able to be self-aware about their energy level. Like, I have no idea how much energy I have until I'm exhausted and collapsed. Mm-hmm. I wish I had, like, there's that hunger for self-awareness that I have that seems oftentimes unattainable, except in these rare moments and then they're like, they go, then the fog comes and I can't, I can't see it. Oh, I saw myself for a moment. I can't anymore. Mm. So I'm going to give Andy a chance to, to sing a song. We got, we got a great songwriter in the room, so we can't, we, we need to hear a song. But this is a great place to land because what's the healthiest place on the Enneagram for any number, right? You're just describing it, which is if you think about the Enneagram diagram, there's a gigantic white space in the middle. And it would be to be dead center in the middle of it where, you know, you have access to all of the features of all those numbers, right? So what I've been teaching a lot about lately is that if you think about it, all nine numbers represent dimensions of God's character or the character of the divine, if you will. So one's the perfection of God. There are the twos would be the love of God. Threes would be, I think, the glory of, of God, you know. Uh, fours, the pathos, the creativity of God. Fives, the wisdom or the omniscience of God. Six, the unfailing loyalty of God. Sevens, the joy of God. Eights, the power of God. Nines, the peace of God. And I think what happens is uh, when we migrate in our broken condition, we, we tend to take hold of one of these somewhere along the line one of these, maybe it's our superpower. You know, we're born with a particular superpower. We have all these gifts because we bear the image of God, but we got one that's a superpower. And when we start to use it toward the ends of the ego rather than towards the end that God would have us use it for, it becomes a gross distortion, right? And so what happens is the health is to move to the middle where you have access. We let go of your paralytic grip on that one number and you migrate to the middle and you're open to all those numbers and all of those characteristics or those dimensions of who God is. And what's cool is is that nines will get there faster than anybody because you see the world more easily through the eyes of every number on the Enneagram than any other number on the Enneagram. Your problem tends to be the only person's eyes you don't see the world through are your own. You see it through everybody else's, but not your own. So all of our journey is the same. It's to let go of the grip on our number, head toward the middle, where we are now open to all the facets or the dimensions of who God is. Andy, you got a song? I do have one. Uh, I told you about uh, that I was going to do a different one, but sitting here, there's a new one that came to mind that, cool. that I think I might play. Do it. There are a few different things. Um, one, earlier Randy was talking, I think you, you were saying that you saw yourself as a peaceful guy and you're like that uh that that was some kind of like state of like well I'm just more evolved than other people and so <laughs> anger doesn't bother me which I totally related to um there are things like that um that I think um one of the gifts of recovery too like one of the things I love about the 12 steps is it tells you that you're insane so so that that, that your way of thinking in the world might not be like the truth, right, about what's happening. Uh, and I think that's an important uh, place to come to. But it's painful, uh, like the self-sacrifice for so long. Not only was it kind of taught that in church, not knowing 
what it really means. Uh, but it seemed like that's the way to go. That's the way to be. Or these people with ambitions, oh, they're, they're really selfish. That's, I don't want to be that selfish. Um, and thinking that as a wrong way to live and then, and then kind of seeing part of uh, realizing my own insanity is that, um, man, all these ways that I've thought of like, you know, controlling my anger and all this kind of stuff is the way to go. Uh, just seeing that how destructive that could be. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the anger talk made me think of this song. You're holding on to anger like it was your mama's hand. Holding on to hope it would lead you home again. Then you wake up all alone to find you're in a foreign land. So if you're holding on to hiding it again, let it go. You're holding on to dreams you adopted as a kid you always do what's right when you were loved for what you did and there's only room for failure if you throw them off the scent so if you're holding on to hiding it again let it go let it go Let it go Let it go But sometimes letting go Feels like dying With no one there to roam away But before you know it, you are flying Resurrected to a world you've never known You're holding to an image of a disconnected God who needs to be protected from the darkness in your heart who waits for you to sober up before he gives his love but I think God would say if that's who he was then let it go Let it go Let it go Let it go Oh, that was big, man. That was magic. Man, tiny desk. Man, is that brand new?
It's uh, at least a few months old. Wow. New record? I'm about to start on it. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that decision. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, thank you for that. And Randy Williams, I love you and your wife, Katie. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on. And Chris, my brother, thank you for, for coming on and being part of the conversation today. You're so articulate about the interior experience in Nines. And it, it, by the way, everybody, if you've never heard it, the Road Back to You um, episode with Chris, it's one of the best descriptions. But my wife cried when she... Who's oh, nine. it helped me a ton. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. So all you who are Nines out there, you need to hear that. David Hampton, my brother in recovery, my Thursday morning breakfast partner, my <laughs> friend and wise counselor, and yeah. thank you for being here. Thank you. Yeah, great. And Andy Gullhorn, by golly, awesome. awesome. Thank you. Yeah. The song just put a perfect little period at the end of the sentence today. And Rabbi, always a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. So good to have you on. Everybody, uh, my friend David Hampton has a new book coming out, and uh, it is titled, David, what? After the Miracle. After the Miracle. And what's the subtitle? It's uh, Illusions Along the Path to Restoration. And this is about what happens after you get sober and all right. the... F- all the surprises. All the surprises right. of what happens to you after you get sober. Andy, you have a... Your last record out was called Fault Lines. Yes, sir. And that's available on... Where, I mean, where people get music, I guess. <laughs> Unless they get music from weird places. Their friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, great. And uh, again, guys, thanks for coming in, sharing your nineness with people. What a, what a joy. And now it's 200 degrees in here inside the booth here at Weld, and we have to get out of here because, frankly, it smells a little bit. Yeah. We're not going to complain, though. No, we're not going to complain because that would cause conflict. We'll, yeah, the three will complain. Yeah. Hey, peace, everybody. We'll see you next time. Okay, Nines. Here are just a few practical suggestions for how you can begin your journey toward becoming your best self. Okay, so first, nine struggle with setting priorities and distractions. So find a task management or to-do system to help you stay on task. There's a lot of great apps out there just for this purpose. And my wife uses, I think, Wonderlist. Um, and there's another one called Todoist that I hear is pretty good as well. Second, be aware of the numbing strategies you use to avoid having to feel your desires and anger, all the things you do to avoid having to feel affected by life. So whether that's a glass of wine or shopping or eating an entire sleeve of Girl Scout cookies, whatever it is, just be aware of what you do to narcotize those deep desires that are really present in your life. Okay, here's a third thing. You need to resist resist? No. You need to <laughs> you need to resist the urge to fall back on passive aggressive behaviors like stubbornness or procrastination or avoidance. If you feel angry, be honest and open about it. Third, understand how important your opinions, viewpoints and, you know, kind of personal takes on life are. People deserve to hear what you think, not have their own views just mirrored back to them. And finally, the wounding message most nines hear growing up is some variant of 
your presence doesn't matter. And what I want to tell you is the healing message for you to get worked into your bone and your blood is this. We see you and your life really does matter. Like God didn't invite you to this party to live someone else's life. We really need you here. And one more thing. I don't want you thinking I'm not gender inclusive because my panel today was exclusively male. We've already scheduled a panel of four women to be on the show in the next few weeks and a mixed gender panel as well. So keep your eyes and ears open for those upcoming shows. So are you a nine? Do you have questions about nines or any other number? Do you have questions about the Enneagram in general? If so, we'd love to hear from you. You can go to our website, typologypodcast.com, and submit a question or comment. I really do read them, and they help me decide what topics to tackle on future episodes. And don't forget that while you're on typologypodcast.com, you can download that chapter from my book called Finding Your Type. Download and listen to the episode titled Introducing Typology in the Enneagram and take my introductory Enneagram assessment. Finally, if you like this show, go subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review. It's a great way to help others find out about this show. And last, thanks to my producer, Chad Michael Snavely, and my assistant, Wendy Nyborg, without whose help I would be virtually unemployable. That's all for this week. In the words of the author, Oscar Wilde, be yourself, everyone else is already taken. Have a great week.